Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I'm here today talking with uh, Brett Gibson and Dan Mendes. Uh, together, they are the founders of NextGen Venture Capital. Welcome, guys. Thanks uh, for having us. Brett had a job as corporate development at Living Social before he founded NextGen, and he's attended Harvard Business School and University of Virginia, and he's a major in the reserves and, and is a U.S. Army Ranger. That's right. Uh, Dan, uh, before NextGen, was at New Vantage Group, and he's been named a Washingtonian's Magazine list of uh, D.C. tech titans, which uh, uh, he holds a B.A. from Yale and also an M.B.A. from Harvard Business School. Welcome, guys. Great to be here, Uh We're here to talk about venture capital, and you two have been at it for a while. Tell me about NextGen and what, what, where we are with the venture capital industry and what you see is different about NextGen. Yeah. Well, one asterisk on the bio, Dan has been a tech titan three times. So he has actually been named to that list three times. It, it's good to have Brett brag for me. I try <laughs> yeah. to avoid that, doing that myself. <laughs> yeah. So we're grateful to be here. Thanks so much, Bill, for having us. Um, we uh, co-lead a venture fund called Next Gen Venture Partners, uh, which, unlike most venture funds, has thousands of part-time venture capitalists who we call venture partners who help us source deals, due diligence on early-stage companies, and support our portfolio. Uh, and we think we're the first to come at venture capital in this way, and it's led us to some very interesting opportunities. How long has Next Gen Next Gen been uh, in business? Yeah, we've been doing this uh, for about three years, and we've grown that network that Brett referred to very rapidly with some exceptional entrepreneurs uh, and executives uh, who are our eyes and ears on the ground. Um, and uh, we think the traditional model of venture capital of a handful of individuals sitting around a table making decisions about which startups to invest in uh, can work and has worked in a number of cases, but we think there are new and exciting opportunities out there. Well, let's... Uh, Venture capital is a big industry. What is the traditional model and how big is venture capital now and how many deals are being done and who's doing them? It's about a $60 billion um, annual industry. That is about $60 billion are invested in startups um, on, a, on a yearly basis. That number has gone up from about $25 billion, um, maybe five, 10 years ago. The big difference is companies like Uber and Airbnb that uh, ten, a decade ago would have gone public, uh, mm -hmm. but are, no, are now waiting longer and longer to go public. And so more money as a result is flowing into venture capital. Uh, even though those numbers sound big, I'd actually say it's pretty small compared to traditional private equity, compared to hedge funds, certainly compared to stock markets or bond markets. And uh, it's financing innovation. It's financing the next generation About of great companies. About how many companies receive venture capital funding each year? It's a couple thousand uh, that, yeah. that receive it annually. Uh, although the bulk of that money goes to a very small number. So uh, we might write a million dollar check to a company. Um, mm -hmm. uh, others might write a $5 million check to a company. Uh, then there's the, then there are the occasional that will write a billion dollar check uh, to a company. And that's what drives the absolute numbers. And you had asked sort of, Bill, about the origins of the industry. And I think it's interesting to look back at, you know, the last 75 years where venture capital started uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and largely as a game that Dan and I think of uh, as, a, as a game of the few, uh, where a handful of partners will make investment decisions. The investors have lots of leverage. And over recent years, 
the entrepreneurs have have built more of the leverage. There, there's a proliferation of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's less expensive to start companies, and the investors have a little so less if, leverage. It, it used to be that if the if you had money, you call the shots. That's right. And it's, now, if you're an entrepreneur with a good idea, you call the shots. The best entrepreneurs have options for yeah. where to take capital. The capital has become more of a commodity. And so the way that we've reimagined venture capital uh, enables us to go to an entrepreneur and say, not only do we have capital for you, but we'll surround you with the expertise and help of hundreds of venture partners who will help you build the business. You know, I think of venture capital as being located in Silicon Valley, maybe Boston, maybe New York. We're in the Washington, D.C. area. It gets to the question, how do you compete with the big guys in those three three centers of venture capital? We're, we're a national firm as well. We, we, have, yeah. we are headquartered here, and we do have uh, the, the largest number of our venture partners here. Uh, but we invest in a lot of San Francisco Bay Area companies. We have some Boston companies in our, uh, in our portfolio as well. And the way we compete is through this network of venture partners and through having uh, a real footprint on the ground in each of these cities. Uh, that said, there's some great investment opportunities outside of those uh, three cities, which certainly are the leaders, along with potentially Los Angeles. Uh, we have a number of Washington, D.C.-based investments. We have Austin-based investments. We have Chicago-based investments. And uh, in those cities, you still have exceptional talent. Uh, and sometimes the prices, the valuations that we might as investors pay can be a little bit lower. Okay? One of the critiques sometimes of the industry or of New York, San Francisco in particular, is that the, uh, the valuations of these companies are inflated. Well, what is the role of the venture capitalist with the portfolio companies? I mean, don't you just, you, you do more than write a check, obviously. And I, I guess I was in that business for a little bit, so I maybe know the answer to this question. But why don't you tell me and everybody else what, uh, what the value add is? So I'd say we sort of think of it as old model and new model. Old model, venture capital uh, implied investment in a company, plus maybe a board seat that the venture capitalist would take to be helpful on a quarterly basis in some sort of a setting where the entrepreneur needed help or advice on certain ideas or challenges. I think the new model in venture, which which Dan and I have, have, have tried our best to, to reinvent, uh, relies on helping companies with needs that relate to access to follow-on capital, access to talent, access to new customers, and how can new venture capital funds not only provide a check and a board seat, but also come alongside, roll up their sleeves, get in the trenches with entrepreneurs, and help them grow their businesses. Well, traditional venture capital funds raise a, raise a fund uh, from tra- pa- traditionally passive investors that don't get involved in the portfolio companies. It's almost purely a financial decision. You're different. You have some 900, 950 limited partners in your fund, and they all have expertise in the industries, and many of them are CEOs and have built their own companies. Is that, is that accurate? So we have, we have our own fund. We have our own pool of dedicated yeah. capital that we can invest in these companies. And then we also have this network of people who are active, right? People who are finding the companies to begin with, who are saying, hey, this person was you know, the CTO of my last company. It's the smartest person. Chief I've, technology officer. Chief technology officer, yes. Yeah. Uh, smartest person I, I've ever met. They're starting a new company. I've been tracking their progress. You know, NextGen has to take a look, and we, we potentially want to want to fund this company. So having this army of people who are finding those companies, but also I think perhaps most importantly to your question about what what do you do after you invest? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, To Brett's question, this is an army of people who are available to help, who want to support innovation, who want to support the next generation of companies. And and we imagine it to some degree um, as having a service mentality towards entrepreneurs. It's really hard to be an entrepreneur. Um, the, the deck is stack against, stacked against you. But and you're isolated. 
very isolated, very isolated. You need, you know, be, be a leadership in any role is isolating, uh, but in particular in the fast moving environment of, um, of an early stage on, uh, technology entrepreneur. We, we, well, you're getting at something. We had a, we, we had a toehold at Allied Capital and Venture Capital, and we were in Washington, D.C., and the thing that always struck me is a deal would come in and it would describe some solution to some big problem, and it sounded great, but yet I didn't know who else in the country was also working on the same problem, or maybe not who else, how many other dozens of people were working on the same problem. And it seems like your distributed network allows you to get out into the industry to see if anybody else has come up with a better solution than what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So I think there's, um, there's one model of venture capital where you would go incredibly deep in a particular industry. You become the world's leading expert in, um, you know, internet applications for agriculture. And so you might know. But if you're more, if you're, if you're, a how big broad, a market is that? That's well, that's, that's exactly the challenge with going deep is maybe there are only three or four companies to invest <laughs> in versus um, having a broader view. But then what you need is expertise from other, other people and other yeah. sources. And that's where this, this network of venture partners that we put together is so valuable because they know. Mm -hmm. And in fact, often our venture partners are the buyers of technology. And we'll say, oh, yeah, I've looked at that company, and then I've looked at four of their competitors, mm -hmm. and let me tell you about the pros and cons. And that information is invaluable to us as investors, uh, but it also, we believe, helps accelerate innovation because what you want as an overall economy is to put money behind the best companies, to put, to put more resources behind the entrepreneurs with the best solutions, with the best technology, with the most determination uh, to make it work. That's our job to pick these companies, but ultimately... We all want the next, you know, great company to come along that employs thousands of people, that drives innovation, um, that helps, you know, uh, pay down our national debt, and um, and so it's, I think we think it's good for everybody. Well, the I think of the most successful venture capital firms. I don't think anybody in these firms have IQs under 150. I mean, they're very stacked with talent, very stacked with deep deep subject matter expertise. How do you how do you compete with something like a Sequoia or NEA or some of these other ones that already have this this talent embedded? And mm -hmm. You're an upstart, and I'm sure you got a good answer. Yeah, you know, the, we've been fortunate so far in our first 20 investments to invest alongside of several of those top funds. Mm. And what we're learning is they have noticed that our model is different and see us as a different type of investor to add to the cap table alongside of their investment. So they might invest with their capital plus their board seat, but they don't have this army of part-time help that we bring along with our capital. And so they've, they've uh, seen, I think, and their heads have turned to our new model and said, I'd love to connect my portfolio CEO to a network of nearly 1,000 functional experts with industry expertise, with been their experience that's relevant over the last several years. And to them as Sequoia, Benchmark, Greylock, Founders Fund, to them as a top tier uh, fund, they see that as a value added partner mm -hmm. in building these early stage companies. Uh, and well, the, you know, we hear a lot of gloom about the economy, less so now, but I think we're still looking for more growth. Yet where you are, you're looking at a lot of interesting new industries, a lot of exciting entrepreneurs. It's a very positive experience, I would bet. Mm -hmm. What industries do you like? What is uh, where do you, where do you want to spend your time? What what should we be following? Well, there there are a lot of industries that are really exciting. I'll I'll mention two. Uh, first is transportation. So we think there's a revolution going on. From uh, first, you see these new fleets of cars like Uber and Lyft, but. Um, autonomous vehicles are coming, I think, faster than most people expect. Um, you're seeing supersonic planes. You're seeing 
uh, hyperloops that are high-speed trains going up to 700 miles an hour. You're seeing drones that can carry packages from point A to point B, uh, better, faster, cheaper. So I think there's a revolution going on in transportation. Now, are these being backed by venture capital, or are they being backed by uh, corporate venture capital? I mean, is it is it both, or...? Yeah, in many cases, they're being backed by traditional venture capital. So, okay. for example, we, we invested in a company uh, called Virgin Hyperloop One, re renamed Virgin after Richard Branson invested in and joined the board. And um, and that's tradition. Has up until that investment, it's been traditional venture capital firms like ours that have uh, supported the growth of that company. Um, and I, I think that. And you, what's it do? So they're commercializing Elon Musk's concept of a fifth mode of transportation, um, which is uh, effectively, it, it looks like it's a high-speed train. Okay, first, but, first, what are the first four modes of transportation? Right. Uh, so um, Land, uh, yeah, air, or, sea, yeah. if by land, but water. This is Paul Tri Revere, well, right? Are we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. First, first if by land. Okay. Uh, I think, I think uh, car, train, plane, and boat. Okay, um, and yeah. so, so what, and the this, idea is this is number five. Okay, and number five is hyperloop. Yeah, imagine what's a, a hyperloop of a, um, a vacuum tube, sort of like a pneumatic tube. Yeah, uh, and you push a pod through it, and because there's no friction in a vacuum tube, you can get it up uh, at incredibly high speeds. Oh well, that sounds they're, interesting. They're they're going to transport um, cargo before they start transporting humans to just sort of test on a on a lower risk. Uh, Passenger class. I, I was hoping the fifth mode might be the Star Trek mode, where we could just beam ourselves up or over. Coming soon. <laughs> yeah, coming soon. <laughs> Are you working on? That? We're, we're we're trying. We're trying. <laughs> so the uh, one of the issues that you have to deal with this in this industry is there's ninety billion, a hundred billion sitting out there ready to be invested. So there's a lot of competition. I don't think people quite appreciate how hard it is to get into deals. And I think you've gotten in through your distributed network. Is there any other value add? I mean, you've got a, a portfolio support team. Mm -hmm. What do you do with your companies once they're in the portfolio? We curate introductions to the most important stakeholders for that business. So we'll actually go to the CEO of a, of a portfolio company and say, what can we do to help? And typically they'll say one of three things. I need help with follow-on capital. So help me find a follow-on investor to raise more capital later help me find customers or help me find talent. And we've built essentially this network with expertise on demand in those three key areas. Actually, we track this very closely. Over the last quarter, we've made what we call 96 impact connections for our portfolio companies. So 20 different CEOs have asked us over 130 times for help. And of those 130 times, 96 were actually converting on a, a successful connection that promotes hmm. their business. That's really unheard of in this industry, to be that service-minded, as Dan said. How big is your regular staff? You've got your investors. How big a firm is it? There are eight of us full-time. Eight yeah. full-time. So you've really done a lot with, uh, uh, with uh, you've, you've leveraged a lot of resources with, with your platform. How does your platform work? Yeah, so we, we've built effectively an internal Facebook um, that also facilitates these investments. And so uh, our venture partners can connect with one another, can access resources, um, articles, webinars, podcasts, can learn about the investments that we're making, can communicate about them, can share ideas about investment opportunities. And uh, it's, uh, it's something we built in-house, but it allows a team of eight uh, to be much more effective and uh, do what you know, we think a, would otherwise you know, be a team of 16. So the, what issue, I mean, we talked a little bit before going on the air that you've had a lot of success investing in, in, in regulated industries. Mm -hmm. um, since we're here in Washington and we talk a lot about regulations, what's, what's that involved? So, you know, we look at investing in regulated industries as an, an enormous opportunity. 
because you can go in and back a disruptor who's going after typically a large, highly regulated industry, and they're coming at it in a more efficient way. So a couple of the areas, and Dan spoke about transportation. Another area we've, we've atta attacked is, is healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a portfolio company that allows uh, patients in the comfort of their living room to test themselves for uh, high blood pressure, for high cholesterol, food allergies, uh, enormously disruptive to a large lab industry that's owned by two large players, multi-billion dollar industry, and, and this founder happens to be ta uh, going after this enormous industry with a very disruptive approach. Uh, a telehealth company that we've recently invested in is our most mature company that's making it uh, better, faster, cheaper to get healthcare on any device at any place in the world at any time. Um, have a doctor basically can be in the palm of your hand using telehealth. Fascinating industry disrupting the large, you know, 17% of our economy industry of healthcare. So how does telehealth work? You've got a, you've got a device. And yeah. You... Well, so one application just, uh, you mentioned the military background. So in, when we were deployed overseas, you couldn't get the best uh, treatment for traumatic brain injuries, let's say, because the best treatment was at the Mayo Clinic. Well, in our embassies and in our forward operating bases that the military uses around the world, they use telehealth to enable doctors from the Mayo Clinic to treat soldiers, airmen, Marines, hmm. uh, using an iPad. And this is the technology of the future that we, we get to invest in. So with, with this, how does it disrupt the, the entrenched company? I mean, you've got a big company. You, how do they get away with not uh, obeying the same regulations the entrenched company does? Or, or uh, what am I missing? Yeah. Well, I think uh, in, in the case of telehealth, uh, what you're allowing for is just a, a better use of resources, where the top you know, neurosurgeon or, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, stroke doctor in the world can see patient after patient after patient, wherever they happen to be around the world. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and that's better for patients. It's, oh, yeah. um, it allow, it allow, it allows for training mm -hmm. because people can watch the doctor, you know, get the recording and watch the doctor in action. So, um, the, as the, the innovation that, that we're <clears throat> privileged enough as venture capitalists to back, you know, we think improves human health. Um, it, you know, makes our economy, you know, uh, run better. It um, uh, gives, you know, sort of energy to, you know, young talent all over the world. So there, there are a whole host of ways in which it's all very so, exciting So does this us. make being a, uh, a top doc uh, make it almost like a superstar business where you've got just a few people, handful of people who are the best in the world and you can really have them serve thousands, millions more people and it may be millions have been an exaggeration, but is that... It, is that the right does, way to think about this? It does have that potential. So, for example, uh, if the best Mayo Clinic doctors in the world or Cleveland Clinic doctors or Memorial Sloan Kettering doctors can see more patients, can mm -hmm. line them up back to back, um, can see the, the patients where, that have the highest need, where their unique talents are most appropriate, um, then yes, that, that could lead to more revenue for the doctor or the, or the hospital. And, and all, look, all the companies that we invest in have to have a business model. They have to make money. And, um, and so, uh, so that, that's, you know, that's one of the ways they can make money through telehealth. <laughs> well, we say all the companies you invest in have to make money, but we know they do not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what's, your, what's, what's, this, what's the typical success rate in the industry, and what are you shooting for with your portfolio? So, you know, I'd say we've talked about this a little bit before we went on the yeah. air, but <clears throat> this business is a business of, of the power law, meaning there's a handful of outcomes that produce a disproportionate amount of the success. So you have uh, in every single year, you have a, a company that stands out, whether it's an Airbnb or an Uber, 
you know, what, what's next, Dropbox, these companies that really define uh, a particular vintage year of, of venture investing. We just happen to think we found a way to, to find those winners sooner uh, and allow our investors to get access to them because we use the collective intelligence uh, of this network. But I think to your question, it, it, it's, it's tough to say what the, the target is. I think we target, you know, high 20% IRR for our yeah, investors on average, um, on average yeah. which is, which would be a nice, healthy return. Which might mean one or two companies out of 10 yeah. are fantastic and everything else is mediocre that's or right. down the tubes. That's right. But that's the business. I mean, that's the, been, the, been the business for 60, 70, 80 years. Yeah. I think I, I'm rusty on some of these math, but I think at one point, some of the top 10 venture capital backed companies represented well over hundred percent of all the returns in the industry. Yeah. It's a game of outliers. Much? It really is. It's a, it's a game where you know one or two companies will drive the, the returns of an entire portfolio. So I have to ask the question: Are there any outliers in your portfolio that I can? Uh, <laughs> we love all with? of our children equally. Okay, well, at this point, you have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, one of the things we talked about before coming on the air: I'm struck by where venture capital is is done. It's uh, the most successful states hosting venture capital, either venture capital firms or companies, are California, New York, and Massachusetts. And I don't think of those as necessarily business-friendly states. Is, it, is that they just are an exception there? Or what, is there anything going on that uh, would be interesting to know about? The way we think about it is actually where, where's the con- concentration of technical talent. Okay. And so I think that Boston and the San Francisco Bay Area have historically uh, been the top two cities for entrepreneurship and for venture capital, at least since World War II. Uh, and that's really because uh, the, you know, the best mi- technical minds in the world were brought there in large part actually for the war effort, right? So it was MIT and Stanford in particular um, where you brought you know, sci- scientists, the engineers, the mathematicians. And, and out of that yeah. talent came the semiconductor industry. Yeah. Um, that's why Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley. It's semiconductors made out of silicon. Um, the, what uh, at the time was called the mini computer industry, which originated in Boston, which led to the, the PC and the laptop and so forth. Yeah. But it came out of really these, re- these universities uh, and all the money that poured in to develop weaponry um, and you know, beating the Nazis. So it's, it's less about state-level policy and more about city-level talent. And I think uh, now you have more and more cities that are centers of venture capital, and that includes Austin, that includes um, Washington, D.C., um, that includes Los Angeles, increasingly. And the driver is often, where is the talent, and especially the technical talent, where do they want to live? Um, and are there companies that have brought in large amounts of talent, like an Amazon or a Microsoft have in Seattle, that can, once you get the training and, and you get to meet other talented people, you go off and you start your own company? Mm-hmm. What, what do we call those? Clusters? Mm-hmm. And uh, didn't Michael Porter have a lot to say about that, that that was one of the source of advantages where you can get a critical mass of people, whether it's in your business or Hollywood? Yeah, and one of my favorite examples is the northern Italian metalworking business. It turns mm-hmm. out, at one point, all of the metalworkers, all the best metalworkers in the world, lived near Milan, mm-hmm. and so that became the uh, Silicon Valley of the, I don't know, nineteenth century. Yeah, you're seeing that crop up in the U.S. today, and I think Dan and I have the fortune to travel around the country and see some of these different hubs. And recently, we were in De- Detroit, and what you're seeing in Detroit is a resurgence of technology that was born out of the auto industry, but mm-hmm. today is being transferred to automated navigation, autonomy, as Dan said, driverless cars. Dan Gilbert, the founder of 
Quicken Loans is really underwriting a lot of that growth in Detroit. And you're seeing that in other cities as well. So if you're mayor or governor of a state and you're trying to drive economic growth, mm-hmm. what are the elements you put in place? You've got a research, research uh, a university, hospital to, to build something around? I should say it's very difficult. I yeah, think that's, that, yeah, that's um, my impression. I think Michael Bloomberg did something really important for New York City in, yeah. in uh, bringing basically a new university to Roosevelt Island. Um, uh, and that was a, a collaboration between Cornell and Technion, basically the MIT of Israel. Um, so research universities are key. Um, I think probably the single most important thing that government has, has done anywhere in the world to foster venture capital and to foster entrepreneurship uh, is in Israel. Um, they um, had uh, tw- 20 years ago, couple, actually, two, it was two things. One was uh, when the French cut Israel off from uh, arming them uh, after, the, after the Six-Day War, um, uh, Israel said, we have to create our own military industrial complex. And so a ton of technical talent went into that and then has, mm-hmm. over time, become com- commercial, uh, commercialized technology. But the second thing they did was uh, the state, in a very serious way, subsidized venture capital. Right. I think they invested $2 of, of, government, of taxpayer dollars for every $1 of, uh, of private uh, money. And Israel is now the second leading uh, technology you know, country in the world um, and, and has a, a second to Silicon Valley, I think, uh, globally is Tel Aviv. Uh, otherwise, it's really difficult to manufacture this. It really has to do with, you know, did Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos, dis- actually Jeff Bezos decided to move to Seattle partially because of tax rates in, uh, in the state of, of Washington. Uh, and now, as a result, you have this incredible burgeoning entrepreneurial ecosystem and technology ecosystem uh, in Seattle. Uh, but, um, you know, did the, the legislatures in Washington state know what they were getting? Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. And coming back to your model, though, you were you're able to operate inside all these clus- clusters because of the distributed investors and, and support system. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other companies uh, should we talk about in your portfolio? I know all your children are your favorites. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, you know, there's one company that um, we really like that we're following closely that's, that's uh, out in the Bay Area that focuses on the 1099 workforce. So they focus on the gig economy, meaning uh, people who work part-time for companies like Uber, Airbnb, Lyft. Essentially, what they're doing is enabling that workforce to get paid faster. Um, when you work for one of these part-time uh, companies, you may or may not get paid for 30 or 60 days, and that may not be perfect for you if you're supporting a family at home and things like that. So this company, Quill, has enabled the, 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 uh, the workers to get paid faster, and they pay a percentage on, the, on the, the transaction. But what Quill's doing is they're underwriting the creditworthiness of the company like the Uber, like the drone base, like the Airbnb, rather than the individuals. They're, they're taking a risk on the company, not the individual, which is enabling them to underwrite these. these what, are, what are the rates they charge? It's low. It's favorable to the employee. It's a, it's a, it's a competitive rate for them. So this isn't a payday lending. Uh... <laughs> it's not predatory. <laughs> Stay away from that. Yeah. <laughs> Highly recommend. <laughs> That's very valuable advice, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you didn't know that. Yeah. What else? What else do we like in the portfolio? Uh, well, we were talking about Washington D.C. and we were talking yeah. about regulated industries. So another example uh, is Vimo Education, uh, which allows universities um, to get paid with a percent of future student earnings. So in addition to um, uh, debt, in addition to grants, in addition to, wish- to tuition, universities now have this new way of of getting paid. And uh, what it does is it aligns the incentives between the university and the student. The university says, hey, we're going to take a bet on you. 
we believe in our education. We believe that you can go out and, and, and earn a good <clears throat> living. And, uh, and so um, this way, if you don't earn a good living, we won't get paid as much. And if you do and you're successful, um, at least financially, uh, then we'll get paid a little bit more. So how does that work? If you, if you make 100000 you pay what percentage? If you make 200000 how does it work? Well, you're paying the same down? percentage regardless of, okay. of how much you make. And so, so that it's progressive in that way. Whereas debt, if you make $20,000 a year or $100,000 a year, you have the same, same obligation. Mm -hmm. Whereas with VMO education, um, if you make $20,000 a year, maybe you know, you're going to pay 5% of that. And if you make $100,000 a year, you're going to pay 5% of that. So um, what, it, what it means, the universities that do best by their students, at least with regard to financial outcomes, are better positioned to say, you know, we believe in you. You know, we'll just take five percent. So of the bet is, earnings. I'm going to take a, I'll, we'll take a lower tuition from you in return for a piece okay. of your future, future income. Exactly right, and in some cases, no tuition at all. Interesting. And is there a cap on that, or is it, is... Yes. So, uh, so typically, you're capped out at, yeah. at maybe a couple times the uh, the amount that you, uh, you know, uh, effectively borrowed. Um, so, yeah, you're not, you know, if you earn a million dollars a year, right? They're not going to take five percent of that, right? It comes down over time. Oh, that's very interesting. So, what's uh, what else do we have in the portfolio? That uh... there's a company that we're, we're really excited about in the Bay Area um, that was sourced by one of our venture partners. He happened to know the founders before they started this company when they sold their last company to to Facebook. Uh, the company's called Limbics Health, and what they're doing is they're applying virtual reality to, uh, technology as a solution for behavioral health challenges. So that, let's say you suffer from a fear of public speaking, which I would assume is a person that, that leads a video, uh, an online video production, you wouldn't. But if you had a fear of public you speaking. You mean this is going to be in the public? I thought, <laughs> I thought we were just talking in the speakeasy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was misinformed. That's right. So, <laughs> anyway, so the continue. virtual reality yeah. enables you to yeah. essentially go into a, an immersive environment into a scenario where you might be fearful of, let's say, a, a conference room, and essentially unwire your fear of public speaking by being in a virtual environment using virtual reality. That's and they apply the same behavioral health solution to people that have addictions, post-traumatic stress, different scenarios where uh, it's helpful to be uh, in, a, in an environment that would help you unwire fear. And the two founders started their last company. They sold it to Facebook, and our venture partner knew they were starting this company, and we got to get in at the very early stage alongside Sequoia. What's the valuation for something like that? At this stage, it's 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 low, but we thought high. Okay, um, they're a Bay Area <laughs> company with two founders that sold their last company to Facebook, so so there is a, an enormous amount of value in the, in them. And right. without without right. any traction, we were just grateful to be along for their journey. Right. Uh, one thing I forgot to touch on, we've got different stages of venture capital. There's seed, there's early, there's, you know, late, there's uh, uh, expansion growth capital. Where, where do you operate in the cycle? We're at the seed stage. At the seed? Uh, so that, that is uh, quite early yeah. um, and, uh, and quite risky. So as you noted, many of these companies don't make it. But when they do, um, the financial returns can be extraordinary. Uh, and... Um, and, and that early stage is where that spark of innovation and that creativity uh, is at its highest, uh, where the trajectory of the company mm -hmm. often matters the most. Um, so it's an exciting place to be uh, and, and an op opportunity when the companies do well to, to also do well with them. How many of your companies are pre-revenue? When we invest... I'm sorry, technical term means they're not... Yeah. They, they have not earned a dollar. No one has paid them for anything. You mean they're supposed to make money? Yeah. 
at our at the time of the initial investment, about a quarter of the companies we invest in are pre-revenue. Um, okay. So have ha- haven't haven't uh, brought in a dollar. So how do you, you know, I come from the world of investing in cash flow, private equity, lending, that sort of thing. How do you decide whether a company uh, deserves a deser- deserves a shot? There are a lot of factors, but the most important is team. The most you want to bet on the individual or the or the group of individuals who you think can be successful, whatever the circumstances. Who have the determination, um, the industry expertise, um, the uh, the intelligence, um, t- uh, the uh, often charisma um, to bring a team together to sell partners and and subsequent rounds of uh, of, of financers on on the vision uh, and. Uh, at an early stage, uh, if the founders leave, if the founders quit, if the founders get hit by a bus, the company dies. At this, at a later stage, at a more mature stage of company, if you if you're making if you have a hundred million dollars in revenue and twenty million dollars of profit, if the CEO gets hit by a bus, you'll find another CEO, mm-hmm. right? Um, at the early stage, that's not the case. So, how much personality evaluation do you do? How much digging? How much research? And you know, checking background. Uh, of people and what they've done, and it, and I have a better idea. Have you guys thought about a software package that evaluates CEOs and uh, and uh, venture capital teams? I think we could sort of do one better, which is that we can typically get firsthand experience on the founder from our venture partners, and that's it, it, there isn't a software silver bullet that we've found yet. But the best thing we found is finding somebody who's worked with that founder before, and can give you a, an account from firsthand experience of what it was like to work with them, what the integrity level is, what the work ethic is, what the competency is. And that's what's so beautiful about our network-driven model is that nearly every one of our companies, the founder has worked with one of our venture partners. Mm-hmm. We can get firsthand knowledge. It's sort of an arbitrage on private information uh, about that portfolio founder. Well, it sounds like you guys are going to have a lot of success. And venture capital sounds like a lot of fun most of the time, but I know it isn't all the time. What's the hardest part of your job? I think, jeez, uh, Dan. Answering that question. <laughs> is that, is We've that developed these nonverbal cues, and I thought Dan picked up, but I was yeah. hoping he would answer that one. You guys have been distributing these answers very well. Yeah, we try. <laughs> we try. We're, we're, both, we're both trying to avoid that part. Yeah, that's a difficult one. I think the question, you know, the question from from see how I got Brett to yeah, yeah, yeah. answer well that one. <laughs> it's 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 slow money in and slow money out. So when you think about the Forever. the yeah. asset class, it's it's it, it takes patience, and I'd say that's the hardest part. It can take five to ten years easily, if not more. Yeah, some of the greatest success stories in venture are still private companies where investors invested over a decade ago. And the found, you know, the founders and the team. I'm in a couple of those deals. Yeah. So you're watching the clock. <laughs> they keep yeah. telling me it's going to be great. It tests your patience. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're so excited about these companies and you know there will be financial success, but you go home to your spouse and they may say something like, you know, you can't spend paper equity at the grocery store. So let's, 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 let's get these things moving. But there's patience involved. This is an asset class that requires patience. Exactly. Dan, uh, final word. This has been great and fun, and most of the time uh, when we have, have conversations like this, there's uh, you know a lot less laughter. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. I hope to have you back when we get our when we get our first liquidity event, which will be uh, which will be great. You can find uh, our team at nextgenvp.com, and it's a very robust website with a lot of information about the uh, the people and the investments and. Uh, I'm looking forward to following you guys and uh, and your success. It's 
great talking to you, Bill. Thanks, Dan. Great. Bill. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.